Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are present here with us. We thank you that you inspired us to come today. You alone know all the purposes for that invitation, for our presence here. But Lord, you are faithful. You communicate to us through so many ways, through all of our senses, through our hearts, through our minds, our understanding, our feelings, our emotions, through our relationships. Lord, we come with intention this morning. We want to meet you, Jesus. Lord, brush away our reservations and our objections. Lord, tear down our walls. Open our hearts to you. For you're the only one who knows us completely and who loves us eternally and who has demonstrated that love in the most mysterious, sacred, and powerful sacrifice in all of creation. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read the scripture for this morning. We are in the Gospel of Mark. In your booklet is the text for today. It's in Mark chapter 8. This marks a real turning point in this gospel uh, compared to what has come before. And it's going to become more of a theme as we move on in Mark's story about Jesus. So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse uh, 31. And we're going to go through to chapter 9, verse 1. He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can ever anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. God be blessed for his word. For those of you who don't know who I am, I should probably let you know my name is Grant, and I'm lead pastor here at New Song Church. It is a privilege 
uh, to have you joining with us and uh, for us all to be together this morning. Can you guys hear me at the back okay? Yeah? Excellent. So last weekend, uh, I wasn't here with you guys. Uh, Ron and I had an opportunity to get away out into the countryside for a really sweet time, uh, kind of a restful time. And one of the greatest blessings of the weekend was an opportunity I had to sit with another pastor for an hour or so and share with one another about our experiences of pastoring uh, over the past 18 months or so. And there were so many common themes and experiences that we shared, real heart to heart. Uh, you know, judging from church websites or the exteriors of buildings, it's hard to see maybe what's happening on the inside. Because in many ways, people, of course, like Instagram, right, you present your best, right? But sitting across from a brother face to face at a table with a cup of coffee was a very different situation. And it was really good for me to know that our church is not the only church on the planet that has been going through some real challenges this year. And that I'm not the only pastor whose confidence has at times been really rattled and whose decision making has been met with seemingly impossible choices and whose heart at times has been battered and beaten and broken. And in some respects, actually, his experiences have been far worse than mine with some, some serious broken promises, broken relationships. And my heart broke for him. And we've actually committed to be praying for one another and praying for our congregations. So you just know there's, he's a much better pastor than me as well. So his prayers for you guys, man. It's pretty powerful, dude. Um, but I find myself rejoicing at the faithfulness of this new song congregation through such a challenging time. And here you are today with your presence demonstrating that we are on mission together. It's a wonderful thing. But we really had a real meeting of hearts to realize that this has been hard. And that sometimes in life, often in life, no matter how closely we seek to follow Jesus, bad things can happen, dreams can fail to materialize, losses are deeply felt, things just go awry, plans don't work out. What hope, what comfort in this good news, the gospel, and what direction might we find in God's word during such times? Well, Peter, the wonderful, complex, impetuous Peter is the person I want us to identify with this morning from this text. Because Jesus, out of the blue, seemingly, is beginning to teach about the inevitability of his own death. Seemingly completely out of the blue. There's a very small hint earlier on when he talked about a bridegroom and fasting. And they're like, what is he talking about? But it says here, he starts speaking plainly about his rejection, about his death. And Peter, the bold one, if you know anything about Peter, he's the bold one. With no hesitation, he just points out that, no, Jesus, you are wrong. No, absolutely not. Peter, right? He's that guy. He steps out of boats in storms. He cuts dudes' ears off when they mess with Jesus. And he leaps before he looks and he speaks before he thinks. Anyone like that here at all? Any Peter-esque? Peter, are you like Peter? How many Peters do we have here? Yeah, we got some Peters. Whether by name or by nature, we got some Peters. And the text actually says that he rebukes Jesus. He rebukes Jesus. This is a strong term. He rebukes him. It's not really surprising, though, 
if we understand anything about Peter and his story, that he would find Jesus' new teaching to be so just unbelievable, if not offensive. All of Peter's life to this point as a Jewish person, understanding his Jewish history has taught him a certain perspective about his nation and their God and the promises of future salvation. What they have learned, come to expect from this God who saves go way back to the beginning of their story. After 400 years or so of slavery, God sent a deliverer, a savior, Moses, to save the people. And this was done through miracles, a show of power. And the people were set free. God parted the sea and Moses was the conduit for that moment. He provided food for them in miraculous ways in the desert. He delivered them from all kinds of enemies. And Israel entered into the promised land through conquest and through power. And when they were invaded by foreign powers, God would raise up these heroes to save them of Samson and Deborah. David defeated Goliath with a few stones. Solomon reigned in wealth and power. But now for generations, the story goes, Peter's people had been subjected to defeat and colonization by the Babylonians and then the Assyrians and now the Romans. So we're in this time in between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Things are starting to happen, but there's this incredible sense of tension and fear and worry, but also of expectation that God will, as he promised, come through for his people. The hope of the nation was for a rescuer to come and to save them like he promised. But salvation, of course, as as their story had told them, would be earthly. It would come through earthly power. And God's kingdom come would be a powerful overthrowing of their oppressors. And then an exaltation of Israel to its rightful place among the nations. And last week, Melody preached... Thank you, Melody, and shared with us this wonderful moment of recognition for Peter. It was Peter that did it. You know, sometimes you're in a class and it's that first person. It's a scary thing to do to be the first to blurt out the answer, right? Because either you're going to look like a kind of stupid, but Peter had no, he didn't care, right? He's like, Jesus said, who do you say I am to his disciples? Well, first he said, who do people say I am? And they had all these answers. And he said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. From what he's seen, that's what he comes to the conclusion. The king anointed by God, appointed by him, the chosen one sent, the deliverer of God's people, the promised one who would bring salvation is here. And Peter now declares this. Nailed it. Peter, fantastic. All would be well. Finally, it's happening, guys. Liberation is here. Jesus has said it. I've come to set prisoners free, captives to be set free. Freedom is coming and it's come and it's come in the person of Jesus. And what's interesting, if you, if you read Mark up until now, it actually seems that Jesus has actually been living up pretty well to that. It's nothing that Peter could have really seen that would have dented that expectation up to this point. Uh, Peter's experiences of Jesus has only kind of heightened that sense of rescue, that this is a powerful one come to set them free. 
You know, at the beginning, when Jesus came by the Sea of Galilee and saw Peter and some fishermen, he's like, follow me. What did they do? Immediately they left their nets and followed. That's some presence, man. He had this power about him. Jesus was baptized. John said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That sounds unique. That sounds special. That sounds powerful. And Jesus' baptism, there's a voice that came and said, you are my son, pointing out Jesus as this one. And then he came and he taught, and he taught with authority, healing and driving out demons. He had power over nature and power over these spiritual forces. Man, if he's got power over the demonic forces that are kind of hidden, what are a few Romans compared to that? Jesus says at one point, let us go to the nearby villages so I can preach there, for that is why I have come. Yeah, you tell him, Jesus. Let's go tell him. It's happening. Come on, let's get this thing going. He said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And I know these guys probably honed in the word authority. The Son of Man has authority. And then, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's just kind of ramping up this expectation. Not only are they expecting this kind of a savior, but they're also seeing that he is showing such incredible power. So then this shocking moment that happens in this text, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. It's a shocking statement to make, especially since many of the things he said prior to this are kind of veiled parables and things like that. And now he's being right to the point, telling them this clearly. And I'm sure they didn't even hear the rise again part after the suffer, rejected, killed part. So Peter rejects and rebukes Jesus strongly. This is a really serious thing to do. For a disciple, the word rebuke has happened a few times in the gospel, but it has happened when Jesus rebuked the demons or Jesus rebukes the wind. This is is Jesus' prerogative to rebuke from his position as Lord. And now Peter takes on that mantle, takes a, a, a superior position to Jesus and says, no, this will not happen. What about us? Think about Peter's disappointment, every expectation is starting to be built up and understanding of what's going to happen. And suddenly this just seems to take an awful, awful direction, something completely unexpected, something so disappointing, something completely off the plan. When have we found ourselves similarly disappointed in God? When our expectations of what we expected him to do for us, be for us, have been confounded. We thought we knew the plan. We thought we knew what was happening. We thought we knew where God was taking us. And suddenly something so out of left field, so seemingly like an ending, something that we would actually say to God, what are you doing? You are wrong. This is wrong. This is not what you promised. This is not what I'm expecting. I've been giving this and this and and living for you and sacrificing all kinds of things because I felt the promise was this way and now this is happening. It's easy for us to find ourselves sometimes shaking our heads at Peter's misspeaking, right? From our position, we see the whole story, but I think we do the same thing. 
Because we're not so different when it comes to our relationship to the radically different kingdom of God. Because here's a fact. Us, like Peter, all of our lives, we have been learning the ways of the world. We've been learning what it means to be human, what human beings do, how they prosper, how they move forward, how they participate in this world. And today we live in a world that continually reinforces certain truths about life that are the antithesis of the kingdom of God. Like me, growing up in Scotland, I had a father who was, as some of you guys, you know, that generation, a solid provider. And I had drummed into me day in, day out that my job in the world was to get everything I needed, keep it, and get more get success, get security. Money was how you would get that. And all of these things that I was taught to fight for what I wanted and to keep it, to win, to gain, to succeed. And it's so deeply ingrained in me that when things are not turning out, when I'm trying to honestly follow God and be faithful, there's a cost to that. And I find myself wondering what happened because I have these two worlds at work in me. I have the kingdom of God, which is hard for me to grasp and understand, and then have the very real ways of the world, which I've been taught to move in and live according to. And there's a struggle that comes from this. So I love the honesty of Peter. He just says it straight out. He says, this cannot happen. This is not the plan. So how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Well, he responds to two different groups. First, he responds to Peter and the disciples, those who have seriously made a commitment to follow him. And then he responds to the entire crowd. So the first part, Jesus really responds strongly to Peter. Are you a little shocked by what he says? Get behind me, Satan. What's that all about? What does Jesus mean? It's such a strong rebuke. Well, if you remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark, there's this time when Jesus goes into the wilderness and he is tested by the devil. And what does the devil test him to do? The devil tests him to take shortcuts towards being the person that God has called him to be, to make food from rocks. And so Jesus is fully human. He is every bit as human as Peter. Though he being God, he's also fully human. And the temptation was real to turn aside from this path of obedience to God's plan. And that was this great temptation. Well, what Jesus is saying is like, Peter, you're speaking from the same position. You're speaking from the same kind of context. And what he goes on to say is that, Peter, you don't have the concerns of God in mind, but the concerns, merely human concerns. Uh, This is what we struggle with, that we have human concerns that are so real to us that we fail to see the greater needs and, uh, and purposes of the kingdom. So it means it's serious. Peter is meant to be Jesus's friend, and he's almost being used to coax him away from this plan that God has for him. Well, then he turns to the crowd, all of the crowd. What does he say to them? Well, he gives a clear path to discipleship to all the people, whether they're the people that are built, are fully bought into it or the people who are wavering on the outskirts. 
He tells him certain things about what it means. You have a choice today of who you're going to follow. So the first thing he says is deny yourself. He says, take up your cross. And he says, follow me. Deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? Not eat that last cookie that you wanted? Um... It's saying no to yourself in order to say yes to God. To say no to yourself in order to say yes to God. It's what it's going to take. And actually, Peter's, Peter's response tells you a lot about how deep our own desire goes. Because what Peter was probably most connecting with when Jesus started talking about this dying thing was... If this is what you're saying is going to happen to you, what's going to happen to me? It's just kind of light is shone on Peter there to say like, well, what about me? Because I want to be part of this victorious kingdom. And now you're talking about this and immediately start thinking about himself. What does this mean for me? And Jesus says, deny yourself. But the first thing he really tells him is to follow, follow Jesus follow Jesus. He reminds them at this point of what he asked them to do at the very beginning. Follow me. And that's what he says to all of the crowd. It's once again an opportunity for people who have never done this to follow him at that point. So whether by the Sea of Galilee leaving your nets or for us, if you came forward to receive Jesus at a Billy Graham rally or you kneeled down by yourself in your room and invited Jesus into your heart, he once again says, follow me. We have a mission statement in song, and one of the most important things in there, it says we want to follow Jesus, right? Not build buildings or raise money or even save souls, but follow Jesus, that he is primary, he is first, he will lead and we will follow. But this is difficult. This is difficult work, isn't it? Follow Jesus, deny yourself, and take up your cross. So I had a good weekend last weekend. And the best thing about that weekend was a chance to sit down and talk with somebody about my own experiences, my own challenges, my own struggles. And in thinking about this passage this week, I realized that this entire past 18 months has been an opportunity for me and for the the pastor I was speaking with and for all of us to encounter this passage in the flesh that the things that we have faced that were so challenging have showed us the limits of our power and the limits of the earthly systems and processes and things that we put our trust in. And they have caused us to die to ourselves. They have shown us that we have limits. And I think they've caused us to literally have to take up our cross, to see that we have a cross to bear and to see the cross of Christ. And really what this past 18 months have done has narrowed down so many possible paths that we might take and really narrow them down to one, one path to follow Jesus. I think I've seen 
myself go through so many different permutations of trying to cope through various ways this year. And the only one that has provided any hope for me, any confidence, any joy has been this one path to follow Jesus.